1: Hey, it's Joanna. And welcome to Show Your Work. So, the coming year is the year of the... Hey. Right. You've taken it upon yourself to inform everybody about their Chinese zodiac. Today is Monday uh, when we're recording this. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so, today you had the rat. Correct. And tomorrow, uh, Tuesday, or yesterday, if you're listening to this on Wednesday, uh, is the ox. Is that right? Yeah. So, am I right in understanding that you're laying them out. How do you choose how to lay them out on which day? Well, there is a specific
0: order, Mm -hmm. and typically the order starts with the rat and ends with the pig. So we just happen to be in a year where it lines up with how the signs are represented and the order in which they always come. Don't ask me how
1: the order was decided. I don't know how the order was decided, but… Wait, I don't understand, because there's a a zodiac, there's the 12… And we know that there's a sequence there, right? Like every twelve years. There's a sequence and one follows the other, right? Right. Rat is followed
0: by ox, is followed by tiger, is followed by rabbit, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Now that has always been, like, rat is the first sign of the Zodiac. Not that first is most important, it's just the order. It's just what you… It's January. That's right. It's what just you in with. the Western Zodiac, you start with January, whatever the sign is, like Capricorn, Sagittarius, whatever it I is. I think it always starts with Aries or Aquarius, Aquarius maybe. Yeah. I, anyway. I don't have those memorized. Right. I only have the Chinese ones memorized. So, it just so happens that this year
1: falls where I am starting with rat because I need to end with pig. Got it, because any other year you would want to end with the year of whatever that was. That's right. Got it. But next year mm-hmm. I will uh, end with rat mm-hmm.
0: and start with ox. Right, Next I get year it. is the year of the rat. Yeah, so it just starts yes. where it starts. Correct.
1: But the thing is, uh, as I've learned from you, um, you are an ox, mm-hmm. yes? Yep. And I am a goat, so that's six signs away from you, right? It's the exact opposite. That's right. Like, it's yeah. it's up is down, it's east yes. is west, it's the opposite pole, almost. Yes. But, you know, if I understand correctly, like, you're you're working with your ma, who's a feng shui scholar. Yeah. But you already have all this information. So you know what's going to happen to me, and I don't get to know for, like, six more days? Is that what's going on here? I actually don't. So when she,
0: as I some people might know, she hasn't been feeling well, and… Okay so her readings to me have been a little bit delayed this year. And even when she's not sick, she takes her time. And so like when she's doing her studying, she might spend an entire day or half a day on rats and then another half a day. And so she gives them to me in batches. So right now I only know, as of this recording, I only know rat, ox, tiger, and rabbit, which happens to be the four signs representing my family. Yacek is a rabbit, I'm an ox, Ma is a tiger, and Dad's a rat. And then in a couple days, we have another scheduled phone call when she has the energy because, mm-hmm. like, it's an hour phone call. Of and course. she'll have the energy to relay to me, like, two more or three more.
1: And then But only them in a specific order because she would never deviate. Yeah, she would never deviate. No. Right. Okay, so now that you've been doing this for this long, mm-hmm. like what happens now? Do people pester you? Do they try to get you to like interpret things better than than they're laid out yes. on online? Yes. Tell me, tell me about the emails you're getting.
0: They get really specific, like I'm a rat, thanks for you know telling me about it. But this year I'm planning this. Is it a good idea for me to plan this? And it's on this day. And should I be doing it on this day? Can you ask your ma? So they, like, they really want it drilled down. Of course. Yeah. If
1: if you're going to, of course you do. If you're going to do this and and buy into this, and I definitely have a friend who was calculating, you will love this, every possible birth date for their upcoming child. Like, you know, they have the due date, but it's like, well, if it's between 7 and and 9 in the morning, it's going to have like a a rat rising or whatever it was. (laughs) Like, people want as much of a decode as they can. Yes. And so do you just frustrate them? It's not that I'm deliberately frustrating them.
0: It's I, I actually can't get back to that many people. And also Ma can't drill down either in the sense of if you need to drill down, if you really, if you go to a legitimate feng shui master and need it drilled down, you have to give your hour of birth your spouse's hour of birth, if you have a spouse, your parents' hour of birth, the location of birth. I mean, there are all kinds of things that need to be, like, understood and processed before you get those drilled-down answers.
1: Right. But, okay, but now let's pretend we're not doing the podcast. Like, you're going to call me and tell me what she says, right? So I can prep before the entire world knows about uh, what's going to happen to me? I will let you know. Like,
0: for example, she hasn't gotten to… Here, here, I can give people like an advance, an advance. Oh
1: my God, but only, guys.
0: But this only matters to people who are dragons. So she obviously takes a quick peek, like a spoiler alert for herself, for people she cares about. Of course. And so she loves my best friend Fiona, and Fiona and her husband Q are both dragons. Uh-huh. Dragons were the worst sign last year, or the year that's ending, in the year of the dog Dragons had it shit. Right. And because they're both dragons, they were in a double dragon fuck shit situation. Oh, my God. Double dragon is a real thing? It was fucked okay. bad. And they had a rough year. Mm-hmm. However, this year, during the year of the pig, the the pig is so lucky for dragons that Fiona and Q are, like, in for some greatness. Um and so she
1: told me right away, she was like, tell Fiona and Q they're going to be, a, they're going to be great. Great. Yeah. And and we know she doesn't tell people to prepare for happy. So that's… that's right. That's extra She cares special. about
0: Fiona and Q and specifically dragons are like pretty good, but the fact that Fiona and Q are double dragons… Means double yeah.
1: good in all the ways. There's a saying actually,
0: um, which is two dragons… Sail the seas. Oh. Yeah. Okay. It's an expression. Right. Yeah.
1: Amazing. Okay. I mean, I could just go on and do this. uh, I think we maybe did do this last year around this time. Every year, Duanna. Every year you are up my ass for this. Well, because I want to know and because I am a Leo, that's my other astrological sign, Yeah. and reading… Things to do with Leo is like a Bible. Um, I'm one of those people who's really into the the Instagram accounts that like have memes based on your yes. on your astrological sign. Yeah. Um, not all Gemini's. Not that you guys need me to tell you that because I'm sure they're hugely hugely famous. But every single post about a Leo is God's honest truth. I'm just like, yeah, that's accurate in every way. <laughs> So I I'm looking for, you know, I like to know more about me, which I think is also a Leo trait. Uh so yeah, I'm always anxious. I'm always waiting to know. Stay tuned. Here we go. You're coming up, I guess, in six after the ox. That's right. So it's gonna so... be not till like next Wednesday. <laughs> I'm keeping track. I know what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Now did I usurp your preamble? Did you have nope. something you wanted to talk about? I did not. Oh,
0: actually, I do. Now, before we move on, I just wanted to give everybody an update on Abraham. Oh. Thank you all for your notes about Abraham. Um, As I put on my Insta story a few days ago, I'm a bit worried about Abraham because he's doing like a hard lean. Right. And you saw him last week. He was fine.
1: Yeah. For the uninitiated, or if you skip around, depending on the podcast topic, Abraham is my your plant. plant, who was bestowed on you by uh, elves Obama. who belong to Michelle Obama, <laughs> yes. Uh, and uh, we named him last you week. You named him. I did, yes. and I felt very happy about yes. that. Uh, yeah, he is doing a real limbo. Yeah, so I'm quite
0: worried about Abraham. As you said last week, you've never seen me this concerned, only about my dogs and now about Abraham. Um, and Yassik now thinks… So a lot of people on Instagram were like, it's because he's trying to reach the sun. It's not that. I rotate Abraham all the time. But Yasek um, thinks he doesn't have enough soil. Um, I don't know if that's a thing. Well, I'm confused because in his packaging it says that he should like stay in his cube for a year and then after a year you plant him and the entire cube into like outside in your yard and you're good to go. Yeah. I mean, I
1: I assume you're watering him enough.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I mark the watering days on my calendar, and I'm very specific. Like, I use measuring spoons to water him.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I just… I can't. can't. Okay. All right. Um, Well, it is the fucking coldest it can possibly be where we live right now. You will hear uh, the heat going on and off because we are too cold to deal with sitting here uh, for your audio enjoyment to sit here without (laughs) heat. Um, And you proposed that maybe he was cold.
0: I thought maybe he… because he's close to the window. Mm -hmm. And like, you know, with these temperatures and they're
1: very sensitive beings. Maybe you need to try like a Charlie Brown style, like wrap him in a scarf like it's uh, the Christmas tree. Maybe. Because I don't want to put him by a heater.
0: Anyway, I just… thank you all for caring about Abraham. I am worried about him, but hopefully he'll rally. And one last thing, because I know you'll be interested in this, we talked about you christening Abraham. Mm -hmm. Did you know that in olden Chinese days, like not that old, because this happened to me, when a couple has a child, Mm -hmm. um, it is tradition in many families… To bring the child over to an elder,
1: mm-hmm. like a parent, a grandparent, right, 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 and it's the grandparent who names the child. So I have heard this actually, because I, as you may know, you know, I dabble in a name, uh, story and just lore. a little bit, yeah, a little bit. But yeah, I did know that, and in other cultures as well, I yeah. think uh, in a lot of Indian and Sri Lankan cultures, yes, similar process happened.
0: I was named by my father's father. Okay. It, my Chinese name came from my father's father and my father's father, my grandfather, um, m- like made up my name or like picked my name. Created it. Created it. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it wasn't a create. I just, I don't want people to think it was one of those like m- Madeleine's, you know, that, you know. No, I understand
1: <laughs> that your Chinese yes. name is not the equivalent of Kinsley. We yes. got that.
0: Yes. So um, uh, my grandfather… Decided on my name based on my mother's name. Mm -hmm. So my mother's Chinese name is Fong, and my Chinese name is Fun, and Fun Fong together means fragrant. Okay. Yeah. It's to denote a flower. Anyway, I'm just saying you are an elder. Right. And I should have said it last week when you properly christened Abe, but yes, you are like an an elder in certain cultures where people bring plants and babies to you and say, please, name
1: the child. I mean, I'm so caught between <laughs> loving that and, like, the, the genuine loveliness that that is that for you to say that and also just, like, side-eyeing that you called me an elder <laughs> after saying this was an olden-day custom. <laughs> or a throwback. You're a throwback. I- all of the above. I will take it. I, I Bring me your your huddled children, plants, <laughs> and others. Um, I haven't gotten a car in a while. Nobody's asked me to name a car in a long while. Uh, and that's something where I feel I could dig in more. There's definitely a type of person who names their car, yes. you know? Yes, yes. And uh, maybe maybe it's just not the, the time right now, but yeah, send me your car names. Let's see what we name them. All right, shall we? Okay, let's go. Let's talk about what a lot of people are talking about. That is the Fire
0: Festival documentaries.
1: Hulu did one and Netflix did one. Right. But I have to assume that you and I watched the same one because Hulu is not available in Canada uh, unless you're being shady with your VPN and your whatnot. Yep. So the Netflix documentary is the one that we and pretty much anybody else in Canada is going to be talking about. And anybody I know and you too
0: based on the way you walked in to the door today, like, within five
1: minutes of watching this is like, holy fucking shit, what the fuck is this? I was watching on my laptop before I left my house today, and I'm sitting on the stairs uh, waiting for the Uber because, you know, I wasn't going to drive over here in six feet of snow. It's not really six feet, but it may as well be. And my husband was like, okay, bye, what is this? And was standing… Over me on the stairs while yeah. I sat there watching going, is this, are they serious right now? Yeah. Like it's, yeah, it's amazing. It's, uh, we definitely don't re-watch with one another and yet I know this will be a go back and rewatch immediately. It's as we say in our business, good TV. Not just because of the train wreck situation, it is well produced and well told. Um, the best parts of documentary You know, documentaries have scripts, right? Like, they are stories that are told and crafted, often in the edit suite instead of on the page beforehand. But it's well, well done. It's really well done. Again, it's good TV.
0: It's well done. And that, I guess, is the irony. It is good work about not good work. And you are closing your eyes right now, like,
1: as if in pain. It's… Shocking. It's yeah. shocking for so many reasons. Mm-hmm. And the first shock for me was that uh, if you've seen the documentary, which of course you have, a lot of the footage that you're watching, especially early on in the planning processes for uh, Firefest, is like documentary footage that they were making themselves. Ostensibly for what they thought would be like the triumphant DVD, like the the making yeah. of Firefest or Firefest Origins or whatever they thought they were doing. That's right. Like it's happening in real time, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and I just can't believe that these people were essentially filming their own demise. Yeah, is what is what kills me. And and that's like there is no film. That is
0: good work. We've just we've established it's good TV, it's good show your work. There is no film without this footage. <laughs> That's right. And there's so there's a
1: series of ironic shades here, in a sense. Like You mean like had they not had the hubris or the grandioseness sure. to film themselves doing this, then the story of Firefest, which we all kind of heard about, yeah. would just be like a, a like a footnote on Deadspin or something. It may be the only thing they did right. Not in the original intended
0: form of, you know, what they were hoping for the footage. Well, right for us. Yes. Like for our enjoyment. That's right. It might be the only thing that they did right. And by they, I mean like fire media or what was
1: fire media. Or <laughs> I don't… Uh, uh, okay, so I think we should break this down a little bit because… Wow, there's so many things. First of all, my first big surprise in watching this doc was that, and it makes sense perfectly now, but it was so, the reporting of the story was so clustered and there was so much about like, there's no food and there's no whatever, that it was lost on me that Firefest, the event, mm-hmm. was actually a massive marketing scheme for Fire Media. Fire or Media. And- yeah. Which he- yes. was meant to be. Uh, the Uber of booking celebrities. That's right. So this all starts, this whole thing starts because people want bigger access to celebrities. Yeah. Or investors thought, hey, people would like bigger access to
0: celebrities. That's right. Like, you're, I totally agree with you. I don't think that in, as you said, the reporting of this in 2017 where we all heard about this busted festival and we saw the Instagram photos of like the cheese sandwich… And we were like watching it unfold. People couldn't get off the island and they are, they had nowhere to go to the bathroom and they were like, the tents were all like fucked up. It was so, nobody at that moment, or not nobody, but a lot of people who consumed media like us, I mean, we're, I, I'd like to say we're pretty with it for yeah, those like, kinds like, of stories. Look, everybody who wasn't reporting the story. Yeah. We, like, when we, we we were consuming it, it was like, oh my God, these people tried to be Coachella and failed. There was no, this Coachella or this music festival was in service of starting this app. This, you know, acts, this, as you said, this tool so that, you know, the next time you have a conference for your company and you want to book a keynote, you can call up and or you can use this app and you can find out the rate for, I don't fucking know, like, whatever, p Diddy. Sure, sure. Um, Creed. Yeah, whomever. Yeah. But that was the business model. That's right. So, obviously, like, number one, does this mean from the very beginning when they had a very successful launch with the promo video, mm-hmm. even though they kept talking about how successful the announcement of the festival was with all those influencers and the models posting their pictures at the same time… Is it a success when no one really knows that this party that you're throwing is
1: actually in service of a bigger idea? I mean, I don't know if that was a secret. Uh, Like, I don't know if they were trying to hide that, that it was, you know, that this will be the the kickoff to this app. But the thing is that the dude had a pedigree. So the guy in question, the Mm -hmm. mastermind, the greatest con ever pulled… I guess, or don't sue me, whichever. The greatest millennial con, how about that? Oh, people (laughs) are going to come for you. And also, I have to say, I'm obligated to say millennials are 40. Depending on which metric you use, the oldest millennials are either 37 or 40. And ergo, I don't think you're always talking about millennials when you're talking about uh, misguided young people. However… So, Billy McFarlane is yeah. his name. And the thing is that this guy had a bit of a pedigree. I don't remember… Do you remember the name of the the previous… Like, Magnesis Enterprise?
0: or something like that. Like, yeah.
1: He created a metal credit card yeah. that was actually a… Like, basically like a pass to a high-end club. Right. Like a Soho house. Right. Like a something. I don't think it's Magnesis, but it's something M. Like, it it's, did very yeah. well for him. Yeah. Um and investors were like, okay, this guy can do this stuff. He right. can he can scare up the kids. He right. knows how to get them. On the surface it was doing well. Yeah. And yep. that's my other favorite thing is that throughout this documentary, yeah. When they talk about the guests who are coming to Firefest, yeah. they call them kids uniformly yes. the whole way through. It's amazing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes. The guests, the people who've bought the tickets, the wristbands, whatever, yes, they're called kids. It was the best. So you're right. He, Billy McFarland, had started that credit card company, and it was like a membership club where you got to have wine tastings and parties, and on the surface, for sure, it looked legit. As we find out in the documentary, um, it was full of holes and about to
1: implode anyway. You don't say. Yeah. So, okay, so you watched the documentary, you watched the carnage happening, Um you know, the people, especially the people in the, like, in the Bahamas, in the islands who were like, this was never going to happen, but it, everybody was working. Like, what were you going to do? Yeah. It's all rolling out. Various horrors unfold. Mm-hmm. What was the biggest, what What surprised you the most? Look, I
0: was taking mental notes throughout the my watching of it because I, I thought, yeah, this is show your work or not show your work. And one of the takeaways I wanted to raise with you is the ignoring of expert advice. And that is, I mean, listen, experts are experts for a reason. And this goes up and down across all industries. I thought about the connections here between even with the explosion of lifestyle and wellness Services uh-huh. and products
1: that are put uh-huh. out there, uh-huh. and I'm going to say what you won't say. You're talking about Goop, yeah, right, and that half the things that are recommended that's right. on Goop, endorsed by Gwyneth, right, are by definition bunk, right. But when confronted with that, she's just like, mm. that's right. And and the thing is, there are experts, as in science researchers,
0: right. sure, medical professionals who've done this for a long time, who are dealing with up-to-date science who are saying like, hey, there is no legitimate, researched, proven link between X and Y. So taking this is actually not proven to work. Right. So it made me think about all the connections out there beyond fire Festival where experts are ignored and how we get to a point where we ignore experts. Now, in the case of lifestyle… It's because, sure, there are some people who have been disappointed by certain industries, by doctors, by researchers who aren't hearing their concerns. That is, I get it for sure, and that is a conversation we can have,
1: but And that's something actually that Dr. Jen Gunter, who's one of of Paltrow's biggest uh, detractors… Yes. That's something she says a lot. She's like, this is bunk science, but… is happening because people have been so disillusioned by the traditional medical industry that they're looking that's right. for something else.
0: And she's saying, as she has said before, like I'm working with my colleagues, we want to improve that relationship. And but we're saying that like it's not gonna get better if you're pursuing these alternative measures. So that's one thing on the expert. But the other thing on the expertise thing is these are people that you've brought in, going back to Fire Festival now, you've brought in to ask them about their experience. You've been to this place before. You've done these things before. You've flown the roots before. You've landscaped the territory before. When someone tells you, you need water, you need <laughs> you need this much square footage to put this many, um, like, temporary residential structures, how you
1: can just be like, nah, see you later. I, I, I don't get it. Well… Here's why I looked at you with an asterisk in my eyes when you said experts, is because everybody who is quoted in this documentary, well, that's not fair. The doc is filled with two kinds of people, largely inexperienced young Mm people… The vast majority of whom seemed like they were doing their goddamn best. They were. They sure. Are, they sure were. I ran into a thing where you know I missed a couple of supers right early on, and then I didn't catch up, so I only know them by their descriptions. Yeah, like uh, you know, green stripey shirt, Attender guy. Yeah. and uh, white t shirt guy who yes. like whose heart broke, uh, etc. But. There are a lot of young, inexperienced people who mm-hmm. freely say, "I've never done anything on this scale before. I've never booked talent before." That's right. That guy. <laughs> I think the talent booker was 23. I think he was what he 23 said. years old. Look, I booked talent at 23. Yeah. Um, not for something this size. not yeah. To begin with, anyway. Um, and it is a bloody roller coaster of heart fear every day, and that's when you're doing something legitimate. Yes. That's when you're booking for national television Mm -hmm. programs that are legitimate and verifiable, and it's still a nightmare. Correct. And then the other people he's surrounded by are sycophants. There are some people who are more experienced, Mm -hmm. who have been there before. The people who are writing the checks… Who say more than once? Okay, Billy. Yes, Billy. You're such a visionary. Sure, you whatever you want. Great idea. The moment that really made me go, oh, this was a case of mass hysteria. Mm-hmm. You know the moment. You know the one I'm talking about, yeah. right? So uh, there's a scene where we learned that all the water for the festival is being held up at customs, at Bahamian customs. And I actually can't believe I'm even telling you this. I can't believe it wasn't a fever dream of my own. But Billy uh, calls his uh, kind of advisor slash consigliere, like that guy was… He even said he's sort of a self-appointed… Right-hand man slash counsel or whatever. His name is Andy. And he says to this guy, and we know this because Andy is the one telling us, he says, you know what, I need you to go to customs and perform oral sex on the head of customs to, to get this fixed. And Andy takes some pauses like I'm taking right now. And he says, I went home and I took a shower. And you're waiting for Andy to say, and then I drove over to Billy… And told him to fuck himself. I kicked the shit out of him. (laughs) Yeah. I, whatever, I called the cops. That's not what he says. No. He says, I went home, I took a shower, and then I brushed my teeth. (laughs) Yeah. And you realize that he's talking about preparing to do this. Yeah. Preparing to… Suck off the customs official. Which… Look, please don't make any mistake. I'm not sex shaming anybody or talking about anything to do with anything you want to do in your own time. But the idea that somebody who is, you just said, an expert, mm-hmm. the idea that somebody who is an expert at throwing events, at doing these kind of things goes, yeah, that's a reasonable way to get around this, and then tells a documentary about it. Yeah, I cannot wrap my head around that. And no. I cannot in good faith call that guy an expert.
0: I can't. Well, not anymore. <laughs> I mean, his expert credentials certainly should be revoked or, I mean, as you said, not sex shaming. I mean, he the request was asked of him and yes. However, my point about experts is that Andy had tried to help and was throwing everything he had on his resume, anything that he had ever accumulated in terms of knowledge and best practices and hacks and tips and tricks that he had gathered and put in his toolbox over the course of all his years of work, he had thrown them at this problem already. And it was it was insurmountable because this was not set up to succeed. It was set up to fail. And so, Andy, I have sympathy for Andy. Andy was like, well, shit, I have used up everything I know. And now this kid who I've had success with before and who, frankly, other people are pouring money into needs me to do this one thing. Like, yeah, it's a fever dream. And yeah, like, you know, I, it's probably a little bit of like trauma, hypnosis or something. That he he thought that that was his only light. It, it's fucking crazy. I agree, but this is what these people turned these experts into. That's also another like an issue here.
1: You know, there's a line somewhere, uh, kind of midway through the documentary where it says, "Oh, it was a nightmare in the days leading up, but it's always a nightmare in the days leading up to an event." And I have done countless events, it and really, so is. have you. And yeah. it's so true. There are always things that are impossible. There are flights that are canceled. There are, I don't know, you don't have the rights to the music at the last minute and it's Sunday and you can't call the office to get them or all the things. These things… You're right. There's a great
0: line in Shakespeare in Love when Geoffrey Rush's character, I know like he's canceled, but his character, um, he repeats this thing where they say to him like, is it going to turn out? And he's like, yes. And they say, how? And he says, I don't know. It's a mystery. Right. And it's one of those things.
1: Yeah, it's a known thing. Yeah, It's going to be a disaster leading up to it. Tempers run high and things fall apart and somehow it comes together, unless you're the Oscars uh, two years ago or whatever. Right. But I can see where knowing that, having been through, you know, events that look like they're going to fall apart at the last second and then seeing them all come together… I can see where maybe you would override some of your…
0: <sighs> yeah.
1: And I really got to shout one out to my boy in the white t-shirt whose name I also didn't get. With the ponytail, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, who, I can't remember his name right now either, but I know who he mean. was faithfully emailing going, we do not have places for these people to sleep. We yeah. do not have beds. What are we going to do? Mm-hmm. He was trying. Mm-hmm. And then he said they said, "Well, they'll see you doing yoga." Yeah, that was the response. Well, first he was told, "Stop sending these
0: emails to the money." That's correct. Yeah, <laughs> don't upset the don't upset the partners, the investors. Which is the other thing I wanted to bring up, the investors. Specifically the woman Corolla. That's
1: right. I thought it was like the brand at first, but no, I think that's actually her, her name. name. Yes. Yeah.
0: And she is listen, I'm I'm eyeballing her um At around, she clearly is a very wealthy person uh, to be able to continue like, you know, supplementing this. Right. And I'm eyeballing her at what, like 45? Maybe. Maybe younger.
1: Okay. So a big sister-y person? To him? Yeah. Sure. And maybe like. Uh, you know, not knowing a thing about where the money that she has came yeah. from, maybe seeing an opportunity to yeah. grow more, right? Create yes. her own personal yes. fortune. So that's what I, that's also what I want to talk about. What's that? Oh, well, I mean, look, like everybody. Because
0: <sighs> we're talking about different levels and layers of work here. As you talked about, there are the juniors, the, you know, novices who've just come into the business. We talked about experts, the investors. We don't get too much of the money here, like, mm-hmm. but sh- she's in several scenes mm-hmm. and she's there at the table when Billy's like, we're going to need a little bit more money and we can do this to make it back, VIPs, I don't know, whatever experiences. And she's like, yeah, yeah. And she believed. Sure. And who knows, you yeah. know, the
1: way it was edited. Like in that scene, he says, can we have three or five more million dollars? Yeah. And she kind of is like, meh, sure. Yeah. Um, like that's change, right? Exactly. So, Yeah. What is that in terms of investment? Well, I've talked before on this show about the way that pilots for television shows are made, right? And this is also the way that movies are made on a different level. Uh, movies are changing a little bit. But basically, there's an investment made in products, in pilots, or in films, knowing that not all of them are going to make their money back, right? In order to be a financier of any type of this product, you assume that some are going to go well and others are not going to go well. And the ones that do well, you hope, are going to do well enough that they cover your losses and net you a profit. You're essentially a gambler when you're banking on anything in entertainment, right? Yeah. We We don't have as much legwork in music, but I assume it's the same thing. You sign an artist, you give them a small advance, and you hope that they earn it back tenfold. Yeah. So if you are, let's call her a venture capitalist, let's say, or an aspiring venture capitalist, you have to assume that this is, if, if it's a gamble, yeah. that it's going to work or that if it doesn't work, that, you know, it's going to be a modest yeah. failure, right? Nobody could have predicted this. Right. Or maybe they could. Um, you know, I'm obsessed with a podcast called The Pitch, it's one of those gimlet pitches. It's like a like a dragon yeah. Stand or a shark tank, but they're they're pitching to real investors who will obviously often go ahead. Sure. But what happens on that show, I would say a good sixty percent of the time is that after the yes, yay, I'll give you money, there's a little after note where it says, Well, it kind of fell apart in due diligence. Yeah. Due diligence. Sure. Is the key here. Due diligence. Right.
0: I mean, I guess one of the things that reminded me of is I was watching a few weeks ago, there was a John F. Kennedy Jr. special on, Mm -hmm. and so they were talking, it was like the last days of his life. Uh And so beyond, you know, the gossip about Carolyn and, and all that, they were focusing as well on how his magazine, George, was doing. Right. Which was, I believe, not that well by the end. It wasn't doing that well by the end. And he was, they say, according to the people who were talking on this documentary or this feature on him, they said that he was stressed out about it and he was going and flying to Toronto at one point to meet with an investor. That investor actually went on camera and talked about it. Mm-hmm. How he said one day, John flew to Toronto to see me. Like and he he made a point of saying, JFK Jr. coming from New York, flying in to see me. Like I knew that there were there was, this, like, a situation and he needed my help. Right. And then, like, another investor, or at least the publisher, I think, was on camera talking about how um, the magazine just wasn't selling. And it was the tone of the magazine, right? Like, a lot of it had to do with the editorial tone. Anyway, that's another podcast altogether about JFK Jr. But this is John F. Kennedy Jr. with his name and his
1: name. Well, and, <laughs> and his <laughs> – but uh- – Aside from the name, he had charm, he had clout, yes. he knew everybody there was to know, right? Um, and he was,
0: you know, capable in a way beyond charm as well, articulate, all that. And even he had to be like going to see these people and showing them the storyboards and showing them the business plan and giving him his vision, specific business plan visions. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like the what we were fucking seeing there in the documentary that Billy was doing where, you know, he's he looks like he's on his way to play beach volleyball and stops in to talk to this person and is like, well, I can, you know, we can think up some more VIP packages and they can do this and cabanas and whatever. And then all of a sudden it's like, yeah, here. Because, let me be clear, the point I'm trying to make about JFK Jr. was he
1: was turned down repeatedly. Right. Because the people who were would-be investors… We're doing their due diligence, right? They look at him, they look at all the clout, the charm, the plans, the this, the that, and they go, I just don't see it. I just don't see it here. Yeah. And it's worth remembering that we're talking about the investor's due diligence. That's on them. Yeah. To check it out, right? That's their work. That's their work. You have to check and make sure that the people are who they say they are, that their sales are what they say they are. Yeah. In order to Mm -hmm. come to a place where you're like, yeah, this is a sound place Mm -hmm. to put my money. Because, of course, they have to answer to their own investors or don't… like whatever the hell it is. Yeah. So that's those people who were not doing their due diligence, right? And to be fair, I don't think she was his only investor. I think there were several. But it's very clear from, uh, once again, lawyer guy a guy who was like, I started a Twitter feed and nobody cared, so I just started (laughs) digging, Uh, that I don't think that his mistakes and his paperings over were very far below the surface.
0: No, and I think that that, I think, is a good segue to to influencer culture. Well, this is where it comes. Yes, exactly. And to take it back to JFK Jr., I, you know, he was JFK Jr. And in his time could also be called an influencer. I mean, that's who you want, right? Like they everybody wanted him at their party. Yeah, they called them names back that's then. Right?
1: right, Exactly. Oh my God, back then. But yeah, that's what you said. Like names, boldface bold bold names. names.
0: So there's in that documentary or that show that I watched at the beginning of the year, um, it was talked about that you always wanted JFK Jr. to show up in New York if you were having an event you're having an event and he like walked through the door immediately it was a success and he used his own clout to start his business and the people who invested initially in that business were investing in his influence.
1: That's right right knowing that he's yeah he's right. influential he's uh, he's got sway yes. he can uh, absolutely have an impact on the buying habits or subscribing habits yeah. of desirable people. 20, 25 years later, as you pointed out, the name has changed. It's influencers
0: now, social media influencers. Billy, you know, may have been a CEO eventually, but at the beginning, he was an influencer. He was somebody in the city who decided to bring influencers together, thereby becoming an influencer himself, and that's actually how he got meetings with all these people and got people to believe in him because he became one of the biggest influencers.
1: And also the Maserati. Don't forget Correct. that we were told, you know, yes. his, his private jets and his Maseratis were… That's right. …part of the image that leads right. you to influence. So now
0: you have an event led by an influencer relying on other influencers to promote, hoping that influencers would
1: come too. Right. Yes. And this is where we get to why this all went down. Cause look, there are successful, legitimate people who have failures. Right? Like Oprah has had ventures that don't go. Uh the Shonda Rhimes has had shows that fail. Uh but Spielberg has had flops. Like that's you yes. can't. Failure is a big part of this podcast. We've talked about it a lot. Yeah. And you can't insure against it, even if you have a hit machine on your hand. Mm -hmm. Now is the time for you to chime in with some sports thing about how even uh, Michael Jordan had an off day or something, (laughs) right? Like, there's no insurance. No. But the reason that this didn't all fizzle five weeks beforehand is because… Even though, uh, you know, there's that great segment where they're deleting all the comments on social media of, where do I go? Yeah. What airport? How do I do this? Talk to us. Yeah. Even though all those people had those questions, they still went because the promise of what they were going to wasn't just glamorous. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just exciting. It was anointed. You are chosen. Yes. Yes. You would be able to say you were there as part of the first. And not just you were there because, you know, you heard a word or like through the grapevine, because you were selected because you yourself are so important. You are such a big deal that we want you to be at this big, big deal thing. Mm -hmm. That is crack cocaine. Yep. I mean, how do you say no to that? A lot of people don't. There are many events happening on lower scales than this all the time that people go to and… Yeah. …sometimes they're great and sometimes they're not that great. You kind of go, mm, that was annoying. But that that is absolutely the lure that cannot be ignored. No. And again, you can argue that the payoff of that allure
0: is that in the job of being an influencer, you use that to build your following so that you can find more clients, that you can find more opportunities. It's content and uh,
1: it boosts your profile
0: and all the rest of it. In the aftermath of FIRE immediately um, in 2017, there was a sense among a lot of people who were watching this go up in flames that there was a little shade and fraud there, right? Like Haha, ha, These are all rich people. Remember, like the headlines were some people paid as much as hundred thousand dollars to go, and if you're like a person, a layperson watching this go down online yeah the the there was a common reaction like, well, fuck, who, who the fuck is a hundred thousand dollars to attend a party? There wasn't that much sympathy. I will say there no, wasn't no, that no, much no. sympathy for the people who got ripped off. I do think that one of the perhaps secondary or tertiary, like, accomplishments of this Netflix documentary was it did make me feel a little bit bad for the people who got conned. Certainly there were some who had, like, you know, this, that, and the third, junior, whatever, estate name um, after the commas in their name, and they have the cash. But I will say that I did feel a certain sympathy for the disappointment that they must have had particularly for those who are hustling as influencers, who were, as we talked about, counting on this to leverage more out of the career and the brand they're building on Instagram.
1: Oh, sure. And, you know, that's generous of you to even look at it from a a business sense. I, I feel bad for all of them. Like with my paltry whatever, like, you know, when you go on vacation and something fucks up, and it happens and things are fine, yeah. but you still, you're like, you're stewing the whole time. This is ruining my vacation. This is whatever. I'm still on vacation. It's true. Yeah. But I was looking at those lines of people standing with nothing to do and then like rooting for their suitcases in, in shipping containers. Uh-huh. And that, and that's before they discovered that like some of the mattresses that weren't soaked had been yeah. pissed on. Right. Like, that's that's just a human level of, like, yeah. degradation that no matter how wealthy you are, it's yes. like that it's okay to say that sucks in that situation. Sure. Like, certainly, of course, we all feel
0: bad for Marianne. Like, period, the end, right? I'm just specifically talking about influencer culture because I know that there are people who either don't quite understand it… Or, um, yeah, there was some scoffing, like, ha, huh, these people just wanted to go to party and, like, look what happened and, you know, how stupid. And I get that. Like, I'm not saying that, like, to have that reaction was wrong. I had it too at the beginning. I'm saying that what this documentary does is it fleshes out the reverberations of the, like, that irresponsible, like, that fraudulent and irresponsible behavior on behalf of essentially the showrunners there, um… Yeah, certainly caused some pain that I could
1: sympathize with. Well, not only that. I mean, arguably… Among influencers. Well, arguably the greatest line in the whole thing is when they're talking about the rainstorm that happens that morning. And some of the workers look at each other and say, well, now they won't get away with it. And what kills me, here's the schadenfreude of it all to me, is that if they had brought… I don't know, like had they not brought such influencers with such reach and such, I don't know, like inclinations to create content, maybe those people wouldn't have documented the story as precisely as they did. Like it wasn't a little blip. The story. It was massive because of the influence of the influencers yes. that they brought. It was like irony had... upon irony upon yes. irony again. Like if you hear about like a bad cruise where yeah. something terrible happens, it's yeah. like Joe and Marie from Chattanooga tell yeah. the local news what happened and then they go home. But because everybody who was there had their own followings, this became the most, most massive story of the implosion of terror.
0: But also, I think it may be, if you boil everything down, it may be the most basic of business stories or the most basic or common of business failure stories. And that is a problem of scale. Mm -hmm. Too big, too fast. That's right. And another example that we saw in this very recently, just this week, is
1: the Caroline Calloway story. Now, you told me about this because yeah. I didn't know, but on a micro level, it's essentially the same story. It's a problem of scale. So
0: we will link to this in the show notes. We don't have to get super into it right now, but Carolyn Calloway is an Instagram influencer with 800,000 plus followers who wanted to do one of these like summits, you know, these
1: tours. Like a, like a day to learn about yeah. her and her brand and how to be… How to influence, essentially, and Mm -hmm. have her spirit. That's right. And it hasn't gone very
0: well. Um, It's been documented at length and very precisely by Kaylee Donaldson for Pajiba. So we will link to that. Kaylee has done amazing work. Again, great work out of shitty work. Absolutely. Kaylee's great work uh, um, came out of Caroline Calloway's not-so-great work. But the event didn't go so well. It was overwhelming for Caroline Calloway, which she was documenting in real time. She on was her getting, Instagram. On her Instagram, she was getting shipments of things, and she was like, oh my God, I have to store these mason jars here, and oh, I'm trying to make salads in my house. I, you know, an overpromise, an underdelivery, not unlike Fire Festival. So, Duana, I guess to get closer to the conclusion of this discussion, what is the common
1: ground here where it comes to influencer culture? If I'm a big fan of, I don't know, uh, Robert Daniel Jr. as a performer, right? I don't want him to come to my house and make dinner because that's not what he does. One of the things that I keep coming back to is that, yeah, these influencers are influencing through a screen. And let's say they're making people very happy, Right. Uh, Caroline Calloway did these sort of long text-based posts on her Instagram. That's how she grew her audience. Uh, Billy, as you say, was sort of his own, uh, had his own brand and and mystique that he was pushing. But to, to ask that person to then essentially do something like quantum physics, like why, I guess what I don't quite understand is why people want those people that they like following, and mm-hmm. I follow people too, we all do, yeah. but I don't want Roxanne Gay to clean my teeth. Yeah. Like, I want her to continue to do what I enjoy, sure. which is write pithy things that make me think. Yeah. And so I guess it's one of those ideas of, like, overconsumption almost. Mm-hmm. Like, you like that person so much that you want to be near them and have everything they have and learn how they do it and be at a party that's exclusive for all of them. And it's like, well, that's not what they were selling you to begin with. Aha! Uh-huh. So why buy that? Mm-hmm. You know, like that's the part that I have yeah. difficulty with. I'm sure Roxanne Gay would do a great job cleaning my teeth, but she wouldn't <laughs> want to and neither would I. Yeah. It's why buy something that they were never selling you in the first place yeah. is my first thing. That's a good one.
0: Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot.
1: Another thing that you touched on earlier in terms of experts, you know how they say like you don't regret the things you do, you regret the things you don't do? Uh Uh-huh. I can think of an uncomfortable number of times where after something has gone kind of pear-shaped in my life, I've gone, perhaps I should have listened to that person who was like, this is not going to go the way you want it to go.
0: And I guess that's what's tricky is when to kick in the muscle that says I should do it because it's
1: scary and I'm going to learn something. Well, maybe that's something bigger here because we are constantly selling these messages uh, on Instagram and everywhere else, right? Uh, If you get no, then keep trying. If you are told that you can't do it, then prove that you can. Keep pushing, keep going, keep whatever. Like… It's, it's almost as though people's meters are broken mm-hmm. in terms of, but, but I don't know, because I even think that's being too generous in terms of assuming that Billy McFarlane asked real known advisors who yeah. would tell him no. I'm not sure he asked that many people. I'm not sure he got that much advice. You know what's tricky about this entire situation
0: that's bigger than fire and is this whole the influencer culture thing that we're trying to examine is that… We're in the middle of it. Like, you know how you can only properly historically assess something on the other side? Sure. And since we're so in the middle of it and it's such a volatile, unpredictable thing right now, I don't know that I have any answers to like really come out with a takeaway, a work takeaway on this situation beyond the basic business principles of scale and preparation and all of that. Because… I, I'm not prepared to say I don't, of course, you and I think, like, if I can speak for you and you tell me if I can't, I don't completely write off influencer culture and the influencer, the rise of the influencer. Well,
1: look, I'm going to be a real asshole and say if we do, we have to write ourselves off. Sure. You and I live our lives on the internet and our livelihoods on the internet, and part of that means that some of this applies. Yep. Many people do it very well. Mm-hmm. very, very well. So it's
0: not like the whole thing can be painted with one brush. These two particular incidents, one on a much smaller scale and one like in the most spectacular way, I, 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 there is a connection there, but there's also a disconnect for me too. And let me try and explain. With Fire Festival, we now know, as people have characterized it, that it was a giant fraud. It was a scam to begin with. That was a scam. Although they'll try to deny it, Ja Rule is trying to deny it that it wasn't a scam. In the end, people were not given correct information, and they were misled deliberately. And it was a fraud. Okay.
1: Yeah, and yeah. I guess just to just dis- just to put a finer point on it, uh, the signs were there. Like we the. To use a term of yours, the documentary has the receipts all the way through. Yeah, that it was. They knew it was going to be a disaster. It was yeah. not a shock. Yeah, it's not a. It's not a freak storm. Yes, right.
0: With the Caroline Calloway situation, I personally am not prepared to say that it was a fraud of intent from the very beginning. This is somebody who had an idea. Eventually realized that she wasn't capable of delivering on that idea, was scrambling to try, and then also, in her way, was documenting her attempts at staying above water. Here are all these mason jars in my house. I'm trying to make all these salads as a way to prove authenticity. Do you know what I mean? How authenticity has become a slogan? Here's how real I am. I'm trying to do this party and I'm so real. I'm showing you how hard it is and how I'm stumbling and fumbling, but I'm going to get it done. This is so real. Which in a way it was real. She was stumbling and fumbling, but the authenticity then becomes an excuse for incompetence.
1: Well, it's defensive,
0: right? Right. And so here's my disconnect because we have tried to like Over the course of this podcast, we've talked about authenticity and being real with your followers and showing them who you are. And yet, what I'm struggling with right now, where I can't find anything neat to leave with is that authenticity in Caroline, there was no authenticity with FIRE, but the authenticity that we were hoping from with FIRE sort of existed with Caroline, but it was like almost a, like, misdirect.
1: Yeah, it's a band-aid. Like, let's be… Yeah, I'm not trying to criticize a 25-year-old who got in over their head either. But I come back to the same thing, which is when the authenticity is authentic, you don't have to try so hard to prove it. You know what I keep thinking about? Those childhood videos of Ariana Grande singing, you know, that float around every now and again when she's five or seven or whatever, and you're like, shit, listen to that little kid… Or Alessia Cara Mm -hmm. um, in her closet. There are all those videos, right? They were already doing the thing that they ultimately wound up selling to you, that you ultimately wound up paying money for. There was already proof that that was accomplishable. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, Chrissy Teigen is another one. Chrissy Teigen, who, you know, people love or hate on social media and for sure is a… is an influencer. Mm -hmm. But Chrissy Teigen was doing two things, making faces and cooking before she was ever Chrissy Teigen influencer. So I keep coming back to, like, where are the piles and piles and piles of times when you were doing this when nobody was watching? Mm -hmm. Where are the things where… like, where's uh, Billy McFarlane, like doing a shitty battle of the bands in his hometown when he was 16. Where are the things that show me that you've always been this person? Right. To me, that's the difference, Mm -hmm. I think. And I think that actually can circle back to uh, your girl Gwyneth as well, because I don't think that there are receipts for decades worth of vagina steaming. I think it was just things that sounded good Mm -hmm. but more interesting than kale and organics. I don't know if that's a neat bow either.
0: No, but you've led me to a place where I, I, I think this is a good place to end, which is there is an influencer I met today mm-hmm. who is doing a great job. And um, his name is Dante Colley. Many of you have likely been watching his videos um, over the last few weeks on Instagram. He's the one, for those of you who don't know, we will link to his Instagram in the show notes. He's the one who makes these amazingly choreographed videos, dance videos of himself where he sends messages of joy and affirmation to his followers. You are worth it. Right. You are going to have a great day. Yep. You are amazing. This year is for you. And then like graphics and rainbows and doves and smiley faces shoot out of his fingers and feet and sometimes that and sometimes his ass when he's dancing. And it makes people so happy. Now, he has been doing this for a while. Mm -hmm. He really only took off in December of of 2018. And now he's been on Busy Tonight. We interviewed him. I interviewed him for E-Talk today. It will air like the day that this podcast gets posted, which is also when he'll be on Good Morning America. Amazing. Now, when I was speaking to him, I asked him about his process for videos. To go back to your point about doing it for a long time before, he's always been dancing. His inspiration, by the way, is That So Raven. Perfect. He's watched, he watched That So Raven growing up. He loves dancing, and he's also in digital design and communication and graphics. So these are his worlds. So what he does is he feels like putting together a, a choreographed routine, finds a song that moves him. And then afterwards, after he does his performance, he'll sit at his computer and he will apply his technical knowledge to the clip, the emojis, the graphics, and all of it is done in a way that's not, it doesn't look overproduced, it's produced. Sure. But this is his his vibe, yes. his tip is to make it look a little raw. It makes a little, an organic, yes. so to speak. And yet, you feel that. Mm-hmm um and he has been gaining more and more followers and has become at 21 years old from Toronto one of the most exciting influencers and personalities on Instagram he still has to finish school right he's getting lots of opportunities but to your point about doing it for a long time or doing what like doing what you've always done this is what we ask of Dante or people who follow him have come to ask is he makes you happy with these videos. And he understands that. Right. And
1: he can continue to do that on yep. a bigger and bigger scale because yep. he's doing the thing that he knows how to do. And I'll tell you what he knew how to do.
0: On eTalk, we gave him the eTalk theme music. Right. And we asked him in advance to come up with a dance, choreograph to it. Well, of course, Dante arrived prepared. Right? Prepared like… for all the moves, prepared for how the, the camera should shoot him. I mean, this was the level of work that I saw from this young influencer that made me think, well, this is how you do it. How do you scale it? Well, you're scaling it with Good Morning America,
1: but essentially you are doing the thing that you know. That's right. So a story that has been floating around our desks for the past couple of weeks is about Frankie Shaw, who is the star and also the showrunner of Smilf, which airs on Showtime. So the show is going into its second season right now, and there have been a series of complaints about Shaw as showrunner uh, that she was unsympathetic and critical to people who complained that she separated writers arguably based on race and that the writers didn't get the credits that they deserved. And most damningly, the the issue that's gotten the most headlines is that she mishandled uh, a sex scene or a series of sex scenes uh, which is making actress Samara Weaving actually leave the show. Um, and we've talked before about how if somebody leaves a show and they're not being removed, uh, it's usually because the situation is untenable. So this is interesting on a number of levels because Smilf the show has a lot of kind of high profile people around it and Frankie Shaw is quite inexperienced as she would say herself, um… And I'm very curious about your take on how we feel about this, whether somebody who is new in this high-profile situation, it's not that different from our previous story, actually. Mm -hmm. Whether somebody who's this new should be given more chances or not. Whether somebody who is this inexperienced or has performed, you know, poorly, Mm -hmm. uh, gets another chance or should be coached or what the situation is. Uh, And I think it's particularly fraught because we're talking about a female showrunner and because especially in the case of the sex scenes with Samara Weaving, uh, that she was arguably mistreating a a fellow actress as well as another woman. Well, when I was
0: looking into the situation and it's been unfolding over the last few weeks, the details that I read were that… Samara raised her concerns. Um, She thought that they were dealt with, supposedly, allegedly, when Frankie heard about her concerns, she supposedly, like, decided to override them and do it, like, her way anyway. And her way was the way that was making Samara uncomfortable, specifically related to sex scenes…
1: Nakedness and intimacy. Right. Um those are all I think those are details that have been reported and verified. That's right. Um yeah, basically after a couple of sex scenes that were not maybe handled the way uh weaving would have liked mm-hmm. uh that could have been avoided with the intimacy coordinator that we talked about a few episodes ago. Yeah. Um she spoke to the team and to I would assume Frankie Shaw herself and said, "Look, can we have a closed set?" Can we have this and that kind of thing? So a closed set is exactly what it sounds like. When there's an intimate situation, it's only the people who are there who absolutely have to be there, which means if you are, oh, say, lighting or props or whatever, you do what you need to do, and unlike any other set where you stand around watching the scene, you leave. And crucially in this case, she asked for the monitors to be turned off. So monitors are… often in many places on a set, but specifically at a location called Video Village, which is where the director and big producers or writers or whatnot, depending on the set, will go to watch what's going on. And you can see several cameras, so you can see what's happening from every angle. And one of the things that Weaving was asking for was for her sex scene not to be essentially broadcast in rough cut to, or in raw form, to an entire warehouse full of people. And, yeah, uh, that was one of the things that Frankie Shaw violated when she, I think, had been elsewhere, maybe in the writer's room or working on something else, and came in and said, why are these monitors off? And turned them back on, Mm -hmm. despite having had that conversation. That's right. And I think it's worth noting that one of the people who had complained about the behavior in the first place, or at least made Showtime executives aware of it, was Rosie O'Donnell, who plays… Frankie Shaw's mother on the show. Right. Um, and she seems to have come together with her now in solidarity. Like, she applied, she applied appeared on the Today Show with her. Yeah. But, it, it, you know, that's somebody who, to go back to our conversation about experience, has been on a bajillion sets mm-hmm. and a bajillion situations and, you know, felt strongly enough about it to make a phone call and being like, hey, this is not okay. Well, Rosie's a good place to start,
0: or at least that Today interview is a good place to start because, as you mentioned, Frankie and Rosie were on the Today Show and they were asked, or Frankie was asked, to address the situation and the allegations. And her response was, I've learned a lot. I made mistakes and we're going to move forward. We had a 50% female crew and cast. It was like the equality that everybody's aiming for, but, you know, we can always do better. Um, So that was the… For lack of a better word, the apology tour or a stop on the apology tour, Mm -hmm. if we're, you know, lately a lot of people are going on apology tours.
1: Yeah, it seems to be
0: a new standard, right? So, I, listen, I think that this is, as you use the word fraught, and I agree, that's a great word, because here's the thing, the, one of the solutions that has been proposed and that we believe in is… These things will happen less and less when more women are on set. Right. And when more women are in leadership positions. Mm hmm And in a way, it did work out that way because someone like Rosie O'Donnell, with that experience as a woman, was able to step up or did step up and use her clout and be like, hey, this isn't cool.
1: Well, and, you know, when… Samara Weaving complained and then left, it was a news story. It wasn't just brushed under the rug. We know about this. We know why. I, you know, you're right because even though the perpetrator of the problems in this case is a woman, you're right that the whistleblowers were also women and their stories were heard and not just erased. And-
0: Clearly, or mostly, they were empowered to do so, to put forward their complaints or, you know, their grievances.
1: Yeah, on paper, yeah. That's right. I suspect that there's still blowback behind the oh, scenes. for sure. But, yeah, on paper, we're here, we're right. talking about it because we know it wasn't a yes. mystery.
0: But then, of course, how it didn't work is these… Methods of having more equality on sets, having more women in leadership positions. I mean, the end goal is to eradicate these problems to begin with.
1: Right, absolutely. And, you know, a problem, and this is thorny too, is that we are talking about somebody who is inexperienced. And I am sure that they could have hired somebody more experienced to run this show. I am sure that it would have been a man. I'm not saying there are not women who are experienced enough to do this job, not by any means. What I am saying is that uh the United States is in such a scripted television boom that it's a known thing that everybody and their brother is working, like everybody is busy, yeah, everybody is working, and so uh it might be that y- it might be that you have to fight to get yeah that person with that gravitas to, to be there in those moments. It's hard, man. It's, it's hard on lots of levels because do I a little bit think that she's being excused pretty easily? I kind of do, Mm -hmm. you know, and I think that this has to do with the fact that like, let's be real, she stars on the show, so she's cute, she's white, she's young. Yeah. That people are predisposed to forgive. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you talked about the apology tour, and she also went on Seth Meyers. And Seth says, you know, uh, n- at no point in show business is there a management meeting. No one ever teaches you how to be a manager. I hope all networks just take this as an opportunity to be like, oh, we have to make sure people who are in charge understand that responsibility. Which, on the one hand, is true. Uh, there are no management meetings best practices for running a television show. Which we've
0: discussed. Who was the showrunner who used to be a hospital administrator? Oh, um, Glenn Mazzara. It's probably been a year since we did that episode, and we talked about how he talked about the way that he manages on sets and in show business is thanks to his experience in management
1: outside of the industry. And look… Just as a sidebar, if there's anybody that we talk about who's not quite a household name that you should look into, Glenn Mazzara is that guy. He is actually walking the walk in terms of equality in trying to find out how to make things better for women on sets and trying to make his scripts representative of what things are actually like or could be like. Just spare yourself a Google for him. It's worth it. But you're absolutely right that that kind of experience elsewhere is what can make the difference for you. Yeah. And so to go back to Frankie, as Seth was saying,
0: there's nothing in showbiz that prepares you for management, right? Like, essentially, it's creatives who get elevated to management roles while still being creative. And frankly, management requires some experience. So here's the situation we find Frankie in. Again, this is tangled and fraught and shitty because we want... More Frankies. Like, we want creatives to
1: be showrunners, like, who are women. And I should say that I believe Frankie Shaw created this show with two quite experienced writers who are a writing team, uh, Gene Stupnitsky and Lee Eisenberg. But they are experienced and successful, so they went off to do other projects that they were working on, weren't necessarily there every day. that, you know, these are situations where it, there's only so much you can do. What's interesting to me, actually, is that the one place I would say that there is a management training or that the person who might disagree with us is Tina Fey has often talked about how Lauren Michaels taught her management, that she learned management at Saturday Night Live, not being a performer, but being the head writer Needing all the other writers to do what she needed them to do and that kind of thing. And, you know, I don't know if the sets of her shows are happy, well-run places, but I have a feeling they are, that they're efficient and proper and, you know, not causing people to step over boundaries that make them uncomfortable. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that because we've talked many times for all of its problems um, that
0: Saturday Night Live is a training ground, like a a lab, right? That when you go there… There are times when you're unhappy. Um, You know, Bill Hader has talked about how he's unhappy. But by and large, the people who succeed there stay for a number of years. And so there's a muscle, there's a training, there's a certain discipline that is picked up, that's honed, that's then taken away and applied to other areas. And I'm not saying everybody from there walks away with management experience, but Tina did, and certainly um, Seth
1: Seth, I'm sure Seth Meyers would say the same yeah. or
0: Amy Poehler
1: or lots of those people. Even maybe Jimmy Fallon. You know what I mean? Like, I, For sure. And so, here's the yeah. thing though about those shows, and we've talked about this a lot um, in general, that uh, a show like a Seth Meyers or a Jimmy Fallon or whatnot is every day. You're practicing all the time. You have more and more at-bats yeah. to get it right. And Saturday Night Live, uh, while it's new every week, is also 42 years old. There are structures and rules Mm -hmm. and things that you work within. And that's what you absolutely don't have on the first season of a cable show run by a new creator. Everything is new. There are no patterns. There are no rules yet. Well, here's where I'm going to connect this story with the previous one,
0: and that's scale. And in a larger sense, I think in every industry, but we'll focus right now on show business, on scripted is that, as you said, everything is getting made all at once. Mm -hmm. More and more demand. Nobody is available because everybody is working. And everybody has to work at a greater speed and pace that I think they used to have to work at. Absolutely, that is true. So what's being lost is we have the scale, but what's being lost is what has to support scale, which is preparation and training. And to take it bigger, I think that is the same in every industry, be it in marketing, be it in engineering, whatever your industry might be, things need to be done faster at a bigger, like, rate, and people aren't getting the time they need to fuck up in small areas. So their fuck-ups come… In private. You want to make your mistakes in private. That's right. Or, like… On a project that's not going to set people back a year. Yes. You know, and so the fuck-ups happen on a fire festival level. The fuck-ups happen when you're the showrunner and you lose a cast member. Again, I don't know the way around this because it's it's not slowing down. The speed is crazy.
1: Well, I think this is going to be one of those situations where we have a hard kind of lesson here, which is… It can be, like, be careful what you wish for. It can be a problem to get what you want too soon. Like, you should want to get out from under somebody else. You should feel that thing of working with somebody and you think that they are the sun and the moon. You know Mm -hmm. when you first have, like, a boss who's also your inspiration? Like a professional crush, too. Yes. Yeah. Like, somewhere between… 13 going on 30 and Miranda Priestly and whatnot, and you think they are amazing, and then you really get into doing it and everything's going really well, and you are partners, you are matching, and then comes a day where you're like, I don't know if I would have done it that way. And then maybe a series of days. And then, like, it should be a long period of time where you are thinking about, wow, I think maybe I would do this differently. Yeah. Before you think, well, maybe I'm ready. Yeah. I think that only when you've, you know, we sort of brush past all these, all these idioms about training and work about like, oh, well, when you've sucked up everything you can, when you, this or that, and I hate to assign this to young people, but you're right. Maybe it's demographics, maybe because baby boomers are retiring, I don't know, people now think well i've learned everything i can i've made my mistakes in the span of 6 months and you're going it, it, but you haven't and it's not because everybody wants to keep you down that people are saying no 6 months is not long enough it's because yeah everybody wants for you to make your mistakes in private like on a test exercise it's a hard thing to to tell to anybody especially if The alternative is that there's a network being like, yeah, make your show. You're amazing. Go for it. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. And I don't know what makes the difference between somebody who… People who are relatively young who have a good go of it… Yeah. …and those who don't. Because we know they probably had roughly the same training, which is to say not that much. Yeah.
0: I mean, so to answer your original question, what do we think about Frankie Shaw's Second Chance… I don't know that I have an answer other than to say that, like, our answer was just, like, a deep dive on scale again and the consequences of it with lack of preparation experience.
1: Yeah, I guess it becomes a cautionary tale. If you don't want to be this person, yeah. check and check and check yourself. And if and when somebody says to you, oh, maybe you can have somebody to oversee you and help you out, don't be too quick to say oh, I'm good. I'm fine. That would be my error for sure. I'd be like, I got this. I'm good. Yeah. And I would live to rue the day. So maybe just check yourself before you spread those wings. Probably a good lesson for all of us. I really am feeling like an elder today. (laughs) Well, speaking of elders. Somebody who can tell us exactly how it's done. Samuel L. Jackson. Now, you brought me this article and you said, oh, we should do this. And the the headline or the peg is that he is now Hollywood's most bankable star.
0: Right. He's in basically all the movies that make a shitload of money, including all the Marvel Avengers movies, which is
1: like a lot, a lot, a lot of money. But as we talked about earlier, there's no insurance, there's no guarantees, and there's nothing in this piece that is about why he's the most bankable. What is clear in this piece is why he's the most enjoyable.
0: That's right. And, like, they try and get there. How Samuel L. Jackson became Hollywood's most bankable star. And the thing is, is that, yeah, it is a chronicling of his career, his start, um, his stumbles, and his recovery Mm -hmm. in more ways than one. Um, But it's also, to me, about a certain attitude. And I don't know that it's an attitude that, sure, you can only have this when you're 70 and you actually are Hollywood's most bankable star. Or if it's the attitude that got him to become Hollywood's most bankable star. And that attitude, well, there's a couple of things that go into this. There's one part in the article where he talked about how suddenly Hollywood started calling. Right. And quote, he says, That was pretty much the end of me beating the pavement in New York. A slew of film roles started coming his way. They list the roles. For those early parts, he was never the first choice. Quote, every script had shit, Forrest Whitaker, Denzel, Larry Fishburne's fingerprints, he recalls, but he was thrilled to have a seat at the table. He was also earning big paychecks. I got to Hollywood at the right time, when the second fiddle check was better than the leading man check is now. Hollywood was just throwing money at movies. And yeah, there's some truth there about money and how they get less money now. But what he's saying is, I was taking parts that were rejected. Absolutely. By these people. Mm -hmm. I didn't give a fuck. Why should he? I like the money. Yeah. And what's funny is that he's made really bad movies.
1: Oh, for sure.
0: You know how we make fun of a lot of actors who take really bad movies? Like, for example, Nicolas Cage is one of those where it's become a punchline now. Like, you say something ridiculous and someone says, that sounds like the plot of a Nick Cage movie. No one really makes fun of Sam Jackson for that. Even in shitty movies, he somehow manages to be cool. And I don't know… I don't want to say Teflon because that's not what this is about. It's not like he doesn't wear it. It's just, and it's not like we don't expect like a high level of performance from him because we know he's an excellent, outstanding performer. It's just, well, you you tell me, why doesn't he, why don't we have those conversations with, with Sam Jackson?
1: I think it comes back to what you were starting to say earlier about attitude, he says somewhere in this piece, he talks about how you know he doesn't always see some of the same people he did before. And he says, well, it's true what they say about success. You don't change, the people around you change. And I take issue with the idea that he was taking these movies that had uh, everybody else's fingerprints on them because he liked the money. He likes the work. The reason that we don't mock him or the reason he's not a punchline, is because, very simply, Samuel L. Jackson is having a ball. Yes, it's fun. What is my number one rule for award shows? Have a good time. If you show up (laughs) to a televised party in a ball gown, you better goddamn have a good time. I want you to live vicariously for me. And Samuel L. Jackson does that Every role that he plays. Like, I think if we were talking about somebody who is a bit more pretentious, we would say they commit, you know, that he commits to each role. Yeah. But he's also kind of halfway winking at you the whole time. Yeah. He's having a ball. And I have to interject with a personal Samuel L. Jackson story. I didn't know that I had one, but this is, it's a good story. Years ago, when I was working at ETOC, where you do now... Uh, I got a call. I covered a lot of fashion and style. And I got a call for an interview with Samuel L. Jackson at Hugo Boss, right? Right. And so we're told, okay, he's going to like look at some clothes and then you can talk to him. Fine. So you know this. So I show up for the interview expecting that I'm going to have what? How long? Ten minutes. Ten minutes. Max. That's a big ten minutes. Tops. Yeah. Um, it was two hours and change. <laughs> what? Uh, first he tried on clothes for a long time. Like, I mean, I can't remember what it was that he was promoting in conjunction with right. Hugo Boss, but he was trying on clothes and modeling them for us. Uh, and he was changing clothes in front of us without going to the change room. Like, this, and it was play-by-play at the same time, right? He was doing the play-by-play. hundred percent. Or he'd be <laughs> like, you know, let's go back to the lavender or something. Um, he was just, yeah, He's like, I feel this, I like this, this yeah. is good, what do you think? No, this, okay, let's do the other one. Drops his pants, tidy whities well, I want to be clear, this is not a me-too situation. Yeah. There were 10 people around, he just could not care less. Yeah. He was into modeling the clothes and doing And this. you have this on camera. Absolutely. Yeah. This exists. Um, somewhere in a tape in yeah. your office. Yeah. And then, and this is the part that I like the most. Then when he sat down to do the interview and we talked about all the things and whatever, and, you know, I will humbly brag that I'm a good interviewer, guys. We were keeping things going. But he was wearing one of the sweaters that he had picked out. And it was kind of like an orange sherbet color. Yeah. And he said something about how at this point in his life he's doing things to make himself happy or he has to choose things to make himself happy. And he said, like this sweater. You know, it's got this sherbet, it speaks to the chill, and it lifts me up. Something like that. Right. And my editor, who I was working with, who was cutting the piece with me, said the words speaks to the chill for (laughs) approximately a year. (laughs) It was one of the low-key best celebrity experiences I've ever had. Oh, yeah. And in case it's not clear, I was having a ball because he was having a ball. Yes. Yes. Uh, It was, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know what they told him, but yeah, okay, spend two hours with this, uh, you know, entertainment outlet, and we could have talked about all the things under the sun and did. Whatever he does, he does 100%. He's been able to find the fun and the joy for himself in everything that he does, and I think that's why he's the opposite of a punchline, why he's a legend. So what do you think about the story then that he tells?
0: Because he is a legend and he can say at this point, whatever the fuck he wants.
1: Right. And I'm just going to underscore the point here. He's having a ball telling all of these stories. Oh, yeah. Like every story that's in this piece, and there are several. It's crackling off the page. And he's loving it. Yeah. Like there's a point where he talks about how he thought Quentin Tarantino was a shitty actor <laughs> before he found out he was a director. Yeah. Like, amazing. So, he tells a story about Spike Lee,
0: about Jungle Fever premiering in Cannes, and that Spike didn't fly him to the premiere. Right. Because,
1: <laughs> because
0: uh, he could only fly
1: the big stars, right? There
0: was no budget for Sam Jackson, um, who clearly wasn't, in Spike's estimation at the time, a star.
1: Right. And, and to be fair, it sounds like he's saying within the movie right? Like that whoever, I don't know who got yeah. top billing, but that he was number five or six on the call sheet or whatever. Yeah. And listen,
0: this was at the time Hollywood wasn't calling much. Spike put him in the movie. Right. Right. He, I think he had just come out of rehab and he was playing an addict. Yeah. And that there were people who were like, are you sure you want to do this? And he was like, fuck yeah. And he did a great job. It was so great that from Can they tell him that his performance was so memorable that they honored it with, quote, the festival's first and only Best Supporting Actor award. And he says, that day I'm at an audition and I called my agent and said, did Hollywood call? And she's like, as a matter of fact, they kind of did. Lee has never apologized to Jackson for leaving his breakout star back in the US. Not only that, Jackson says, when he came back, he didn't actually give me my goddamn award for like eight months. (laughs) See, so obviously he's not holding it against him. That role clearly catapulted him, like Hollywood is calling. You got this amazing once-in-a-lifetime, literally, award from the Cannes Film Festival. You're going to work. Everything's cool. Spike still didn't fly you out.
1: We don't have to be mad at anybody. Right? Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, what's the… No, you already did the work. As you said, he put you in the movie. You put the performance on film, which caused them to create an award for you. Um, yeah, what's to be mad at? It's I, there.
0: I I would like… If I were going to interview Spike Lee coming up soon, I would say, hey, I just uh, read this article about Sam in The Hollywood Reporter about, you know, the Cannes Film Festival, said you never apologize, And I imagine Spike Lee being like, why the fuck should I apologize? Yeah. I made that guy, <laughs> he
1: would say. <laughs> yeah.
0: But these are the stories, right? Like, that only makes sense when you look back. He… I'm sure Spike knew it was an amazing performance. I don't know that Spike knew that it would get a special once-in-a-lifetime award, but I'm pretty sure Spike would have been confident. It's his movie, after all.
1: Yeah, but even then, how can you be mad at that? Even if you're Spike Lee and you don't expect that, um, how can you be mad that the guy you chose to put in your movie got a special award? You're like, even if you're annoyed, you're like, well, I guess I can pick him. I'm a genius. Yeah. Yeah. I think what this comes down to, and this is alchemy, you can't make this up, but Samuel L. Jackson either has always known who he is… Or he made a real effort to get to be comfortable with who he is, right? There is no pretense. There's no illusion. He'll stand in front of strangers in his tidy whities in between cashmere sweaters. Yeah. He is not pretending for anybody, and that's what's so alluring. That's why people will see him in anything and love him in anything, is that he's not striving to be anything other than what he is. The only striving we hear of in this whole piece is what well, he was striving to, mm-hmm. to… for Hollywood to call. He wanted to get there. And now he's there and he's yep. not going to be mad at it. So you know who… Well, let me tell you the sort of genesis
0: of this. When I pitched this to you, one of the things I thought I wanted to end on, and probably we can end on this, So I was going to say, is there going to be anyone else like this? Bankable who took the roles that got passed over, who can have this kind of attitude. And I was stumped for a bit. hmm And then I think I came up with it. Okay. Should I put you out of your misery? Or
1: do you have somebody in, your mi- in mind? I don't. I don't. And I'm wondering if… Uh, just the way you're talking, I feel as though there should be like three contenders. But anyway, go on. I only
0: have one, but I would love to invite people to like give us options mm-hmm. as not homework, but this is more like fun game. I think that you know who else has some of this? Is Sandra O. Oh.
1: Right. Has always been Sandra O. Oh. Yeah. Has been waiting to be seen as Sandra O. Oh. Yeah. And now that people are finally appreciating Sandra O, oh, yeah. Is gonna continue to be Sandra O. Oh. That's right. You know what brought me to this though? She hosted the Golden Globes
0: with Andy Samberg, mm-hmm. and it is de rigueur to
1: watch an awards show and dump on something. Dump on someone. You mean make somebody or something the punchline?
0: Yeah. Or like, I didn't like her. I didn't like him. Right. It wasn't funny. Or put the blame on the host or hosts or whatever. Right. No complaints about Sandra O. Oh. Like, have you come across anything negative? About Sandra O. Oh. No, I haven't. Not her jokes, not her parents, not her winning, not her speeches, not her earnestness. No, she... well,
1: nobody can… nobody can criticize any of that. And as you say, she's sort of her own package, right? Um, she's been leaving it all on the floor since long before Grey's Anatomy, as yeah. Canadians who know indie film will tell you, but… Yeah, she's been being Sandra Oh. Yeah. She didn't make any missteps that night because it wasn't her first time out being Sandra O. Yeah. But she's
0: got that Sam Jackson thing where, like, even if she were going to be in something shitty, it wouldn't be like, oh, Sandra O. was in something shitty, boo, boo, boo. Just
1: like Sam Jackson. She's having a good time. She's having a great time and she doesn't have any insecurity about doing it. No. I love that. I love that, but I have to say, I thought and I hoped that maybe you were going to have somebody slightly younger, mm-hmm. and uh, I don't have a suggestion, but I have a reason for that need, Okay, and it's my favorite anecdote in the whole piece. I'm sure you can guess. Yeah. They're talking, the reporter's talking to Samuel L. Jackson about how he's such a legend, that now he is even the subject of scripts on the blacklist, which is the biggest unproduced scripts. Not scripts that are written for him. Yeah. But in this case, uh, there's a logline for a script that says, During segregation in the 1960s American South, a nerdy teen tries to win a student election at an all-black high school, but he'll have to defeat a blossoming badass named Samuel L. Jackson to do so. So... He tells him this, and Sam Jackson goes, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, and then they say, oh, and it was written by John Dorsey, and it says, a broad smile crosses Jackson's face. Is that William Dorsey's son, he asks? The answer is yes. That was the guy who ran against me for student body president. (laughs) Like, his legend continues. Now, he does go on to say, but I was the nerdy team, and he was the cool guy, but... When asked who won the election, I did, Jackson says, still smiling. This is the kind of person who has had this impact on people since he was, did it say middle school? Since he was 12 years old. Yeah. So somebody needs to be coming up with enough swagger to play that. But I love that Sandra O is in the immediate, the heir apparent, because I can't think of anybody better. You guys tell us. Who in your mind could be that? The exquisite don't give a fuck and joy at the same time. That's what we're looking to nail down here. And on that note, uh, this week apparently was all about... uh, Listening to those who know better and checking yourself. So let us know how that resonates for you, what you've been doing in that way, and how you want to do that going forward.
0: Keep sending us your notes about your work and keep sending us your suggestions. A lot of you were suggesting to us and asking that we cover Fire Festival this week,
1: and we felt like we had to. And a lot of you have sent other ideas that are actually in the hopper for upcoming shows. We can't tell you too much yet, but suffice it to say, your voices are definitely being heard. Thank you so much. Thanks for
0: listening. Please subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts, leave comments, leave reviews. We love that. We need that. And until next time, work hard. Bye. Show your work.